0: Galatians 4, 9 says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, let's pray. Lord, our God and Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come into your presence that we might actually approach the throne of grace as too wonderful for us, and that you might actually deign to reveal yourself in scripture so that we might know you and in knowing you have life and hope and peace is wonderful. We thank you for all of these blessings in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, for those of you that don't know, we are going to be using the form of a text to go through the next month. For the next three weeks after this, we'll be going through the ideas put into this long sermon, which is all a book like this is, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. We have quite a few copies down here that you can uh, take home and read. But the idea of knowing God in many ways has fallen on hard times in the American church. There's a strong movement toward experiencing God as if he can't be known or knowing things about God as if he's some kind of a mechanism that's subject to the investigations of man. But the old faith of knowing God and being known by God is not as common as it used to be. And we'll look at some of the distinctions between these two things. One of the most important things about this idea that's always been in the Reformed faith and it's always been in the thought of the Puritans and Reformed is the fact that there's a distinction between knowing stuff about God and knowing God, that those are actually distinguishable. And with that, of course, the main currents of liberal Christianity tended toward this extreme. You can't really know about the really true God. They even go to the extent of denying that this Bible is actually the Word of God because they say God is so amazing and He's so august and He's so glorious that He could never reveal Himself to mere man. Now you might have heard this kind of skepticism. It's very popular in, in, in comedy and even in the halls of science that the idea that man might, that God might actually pay attention to His creation is laughable to some. And yet the entire glory of the incarnation, the entire purpose of Christ's coming was so we could know the real and true God that created all things. Amen? Toward the other side of the spectrum, there's a group that says, you know, the Bible is not important in itself. It has good things in it, but you can't get too into the Bible because really you're supposed to experience God. It's the feeling of God that's important. And how he makes you feel when you worship, not all those things he said in a dusty old book from 2,000 years ago. And that also leaves us a bit lost because it's very easy for God to just become a feeling that you have and not someone that's told you truth from error in sacred scripture. So as we go through this, of course, you know, uh, frankly, uh, I've been doing this a while I taught my first Bible study about 35 years ago. My first, like, official one, like in a church that had consequences to it. And somebody could have actually told me, man, you are so wrong. And in that, you know, uh, I still know some of the people from those days, and I still remember the things that I taught wrong. They still itch at me, and those people remember that. They're close friends now. But the idea that we would actually prize and value learning about God and studying theology is just not as common as it used to be. We're going to start out here with this, where Packer opens his book on chapter one, page one, not quoting himself, because that would be a lot, right? But by quoting Charles Spurgeon. How many of you have ever read Spurgeon? Spurgeon's one of the greatest pastors and trainers of pastors ever and he wrote a little about his early experience and why he would actually study theology. What is the benefit of knowing a bunch of stuff about God in regard to knowing God? On January 7, 1855, the minister of New Park Street Chapel, Southwark, England, opened his morning sermon as follows. It's been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it's equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There's something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them, we feel a kind of self-content and go away with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this matter, this science, Finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depths and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and I know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend to humble the mind more than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who thinks often of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified. The knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole man as a devout, earnest, and continued investigation of the great subject of the Deity. And while humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in the contemplation of Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know of nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swilling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. These words spoken over a century ago by Charles Haddon Spurgeon At that time, only 20 years old. And a lot of this, in a similar way, was my experience with the fact that it wasn't until I truly engaged in Scripture that my mind opened up to so many things. If you ever wonder if the world ever got to me, they had me almost completely They had warped my thinking. Popular culture was shaping me this way and that. I had no sense of who I was. I was raised with an identity, but it was almost completely erased by the world until a friend challenged me to read scripture for myself. And like a lot of you, all the times I'd read it before, I had memorized the verses in Sunday school and that kind of thing, but I had never sat and read the Bible for myself except to get to Leviticus and skip to the Revelation. Which, as you know, leaves out a lot of important things, vaguely important things, right? But I just wanted the interesting stuff. And in that year to two years of actually reading scripture, God so worked in my soul that he produced faith in me. But not only that, but he opened my mind to so many thoughts. Things about truth, things about the nature of existence, things about right and wrong and good and evil. These things are produced in us through the contemplation of the deity. Now, we don't use that term a lot, contemplation.
1: And, you know, he's from England.
0: They use fancy words there. But we might use the word meditation. And not in a weird, strange way. There's a very strong Christian current of meditating on the word of God. The difference between thinking about and reading and meditating is in meditating, you stop and you pray and you think about what you've read and you apply it to your own mind and heart so that it goes down into the gravitas of the soul and doesn't just slip away from the cerebrum. It's not just thinking about, it's thinking in, and it's thinking deep. In this, thinking about omniscience is hard. And I know it's a big word. We have the big words we talk about with God. There's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. There's omnipresent, which means he's always present, no matter where. And he's as much present everywhere as he is everywhere else. But there's also omniscience, that he knows everything. And this is perhaps the most humbling and overpowering of these ideas. When we get to the idea that God knows us infinitely and completely and everything about us, Calvin said in chapter one, page one of the Institutes of the Christian Religion that the contemplation of ourselves eventually draws us to the contemplation of God for this reason. We don't know ourselves. We all have this myth that we come into the world and if anybody really knows us, we know us, right? And then we get married. We find out somebody else knows us better than we do, right? Or we have trusted real friends that we've stood the test of time with. And they will tell us the real truth about us. We tend to perceive ourselves one way, and God and other people tend to perceive us another way. And maybe you can fool most of the people most of the time, but you can't fool everybody all the time, right? We can't even fool ourselves all the time. The two most common things that destroy us are thinking of ourselves as lower or more base, or more worthless than we are, because in Christ we've been exalted, or thinking ourselves more great, and more glorious, and more wonderful than we are. These are the two main strategies of man for dealing with who and what we are. As we see the entire culture going through another one of these phases, because you know it's happened again and again through history, that the entire culture of the world has come to the place where they prized man more than anything. And they finally said, now we understand everything and every generation before us was nothing. It happens again and again, usually before a great world war (laughs) that humbles us all because we never know as much as we think we do. And sometimes God uses these events and these flows of history to bring us back to this fact. You never know who you are until you know yourself within the context of the God that created you. I'm going to say that again. You never know who you are until you know and understand yourself within the context of the God that created you. The Apostle Paul goes all the way on this. There's a few places where he doesn't hold back, and he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, here's the thing about this. Because the culture pushes so hard on this idea, God is so big and so awesome, because they don't deny the existence of God, right? He's so big and so awesome that what would he have to do with these little ants on the side of the hill, right? But when we talk about God's omniscience, that he knows everything, he not only knows everything, he knows everything in exactly the same way. The God that created the universe because of the peculiarities of his being, can also be intimate and personally relatable to a tiny ant on the side of an anthill. In other words, he's not more out in the cosmos managing the stars and the galaxies than he is in your prayer closet with you. He is wholly manifested at every point. And so this God that created all things can actually have an interpersonal relationship with even the tiny things that he's made in which 100% of his attention is actually on you and communicating with you even while he's holding the stars and the planets in place. Now I know this is big theology, but it's good theology. You know, if it wasn't for this theology, I never really could have had a god. The gods of the ancient Greeks and the Romans, they were kind of cool, powerful gods, Hercules and all these guys. They were basically superheroes, right? But they had great moral laxity, right? To say the least. Zeus was always trying to get a woman, always. Always after an earth woman. There's movies like that, right? They were just bigger men with possibly more problems than we have. And yet the purity of Jesus Christ, the mere morality of the God is not really sufficient to know him. We could know good and evil through many ways and God has made that plain in Christ. But we have to understand ourselves too. What about me? Does God actually love me or does he just love y'all and I'm just dwelling among you? That's why we get to the omniscience of God. There is no particle of your being that he knows less than the totality of his own being. God's knowledge is infinite. And while we can't know what it's like to have infinite knowledge, we can certainly know what it's like to know a lot, which is an analogy, right? Let's take a look at chapter 139 of the Psalms, Psalm 139. Now, this is a heavy psalm. This gets into the deep things of God here, right? But here, one of the main things he's talking about is what it really is to be known by God. There's a difference between knowing about God and being known by God and also knowing God. Psalm 139. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind, and before me and lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So as he starts out, does God kind of have you surrounded or what? Should this just make us a wee bit anxious? I'll tell you what, in my early faith, I found it almost intolerable. I still remember the first time I asked my dad, God, uh, Dad, where is God when I go to the bathroom? Because just the everywhereness of him is kind of mind-boggling and overwhelming. It's almost like an invasion of our privacy. Really, I can have no private thought without God? Can't I get a little distance from him just to be human? And the answer to that is no. But that's not a scandalous answer. Let's go on. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when it was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So God not only knows what you were going to be He has an active role in bringing it about and knitting you together. And he knows what all of your days are going to be. He knows you past, present, and future infinitely well. Then he says this. Here's his reaction to that. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those that hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. At the end, after saying all those things, you see that he finds deep and devoted comfort in the fact that he has come to terms with the fact that he cannot escape from God, that God knows him so entirely and so completely and so infinitely, eventually turns to the fact that he worships God for who he is. All of us want interpersonal intimacy, right? Right? we kind of yearn to have somebody to talk to, especially real talk. You notice how a lot of times in the South, people are very satisfied with, oh, well, bless your heart, which can mean anything. We're shocked by the sheer variety of meanings that term can have. Could be good, could be bad. People could be telling you they want your heart blessed. They could be telling you where to get off, right? Right? But we all yearn clear communication and the fact that somebody has heard us and that we have been valued and that we value them also. We could call it friendship or anything like that. We find this in marriage. We find it with our families. We find it with our friends. And yet we know that in Scripture in places like this, God has made it eminently clear that our, in, our relationship with him is infinitely intimate. He knows that he knows that he knows that's what makes it so mind-blowing that he loves us anyway. Almost any of us could get somebody that loves us, right? Everybody's got a mother. Everybody's got somebody that loves them. (coughs) But he created you for communion with him, for coming together with him, so that you are the only thing created in the entire universe, except for hypothetically angels possibly, that can actually interact with God on a one-to-one level that were created after his own image and likeness. And there's something in God that enjoys his relationship with you. He does not see you as bugs on the surface of the earth. He does not see you as a mere creation. He doesn't see us as robots. He doesn't see us as pets. He sees us as his children and he loves us. Let's take a look at the text that we have for today, Ephesians. Excuse me, Galatians four nine from four one in talking about the relationship of people with God. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those who were under law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now formerly you did not know God, but were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods at all. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So notice the way that he talks about being known by God. Don't you think God knew all about you before you became a Christian? He probably had a pretty good idea, right? So here, when he's talking about being known by God, he's not talking about mere information about you. He's talking about in that intimate familial sense. Now you guys know, My dad was in the Assemblies of God, right? They were the holy rollers. No, we weren't snake handlers because we were in California and that just didn't get out there. But if there's one thing those churches have that's kind of a benefit to them, they have a very almost immaturely overwhelming focus on the Holy Spirit and their intimate communion with God, right? Presbyterians can tend to get uncomfortable with that and take a few steps back. All right, let's not get too excited. Let's not get too happy about Jesus. I'm relatively happy about Jesus. I'm happy-ish, right? You're not gonna see it on my face, but believe me, there's stuff going on in there, right? Do you think that is the adequate response to the things that God has done for us? Many times I've told you there are norms in the Christian life, and the Christian life is not one of mourning and sadness. The norm of the Christian life is happiness and peace. We'll have days up and we'll have days down. But the normal aspect of faith as it's expressed through the Christian life is joy, it's joy. So we'll go through that more and more as we go through this text. I would just encourage you to try to read the first chapter by the end of the week. You can always find on Amazon or any Christian bookstore, it's a very well-known text by a Reformed author. And we're gonna get a little farther into what it is to know God. Now, here are the three things that he expects us to learn from this, okay? That there are three things that a Christian gets from knowing God. Number one, he says they have great energy for God. In other words, they start to do things for God. They're driven to do things, not just sit around with it. Another is they develop great boldness for God. Whereas before they were afraid, now their fear evaporates because they know him. And the next is contentment, which we would call peace in the soul. Where does the peace come from? Once you know God and you're able to integrate your intimate knowledge with him, with the knowing about him, it brings a peace to the soul that gives you rest. The Apostle Paul said, in all circumstances. How many circumstances? All circumstances. These are the three great benefits of this study. Let's pray. Lord, our God, as we enter this new subject this month, Lord God, we just pray that you would bless us in this endeavor. We know that you've already promised us that any who want wisdom, Lord God, you will give them wisdom. You don't find fault in anyone who comes to you and says, Lord God, I want to know. So we pray, Lord God, that you would open our eyes and hearts to these things consistent with your will. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. These rise as we sing Psalm number one.